1: Quantum supremacy has been claimed by a number of organisations and and/or countries, right? It's inevitable that it will happen. The impact of it may well be really challenging. And how we defend or protect or, or put security wraps around the data that we own personally and professionally, I think needs to be thought about now. You know, it's a conversation that, you know, it'll be like a dam breaking right you know um, or a tsunami coming here when it happens it's happened it happens you'll know it's going to happen but by the time it happens it's too late right so i th- i think really thinking about the the validity and the importance of your personal data how it's managed how it's shared who gets value of it who has access to certain parts of it is something we've not really yet fully thought through at to scale and for me if there's a future for the cloud. If if the cloud or the cloud of clouds can start to solve that problem, there'll be a greater trust in the cloud, whoever is providing those services, and therefore greater engagement with those services. And I think we'll see a real step change if we achieve that.
0: Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And in this episode, we're gonna focus on 2022 and forecast trends that we can expect to see in the next year. In the short summary is that the public sector is looking stronger and more capable than ever, despite ever-escalating challenges. It's a really exciting time to be part of it. Looking back, the pandemic has been a time of tremendous innovation in the public sector. In terms of technology, we saw a fantastic acceleration of cloud adoption. And in terms of organizational responses, we saw even the most rigidly managed organizations embrace the necessity of remote work and really make it work. And in the face of leadership at all organizational levels, it's changed as well. Today, we see a level of interdepartmental cooperation on IT and security issues that we've never seen. This collaborative impetus is servicing new ideas and socializing best practices to enable agencies to be more secure and more accessible to the citizens they serve. And it's truly inspiring. And as the folks listening that work in this industry know, as government goes, so goes the world. After all, the public sector employs about 33% of the global workforce, and its expenditures account for about 30% of global GDP. In the next year, the global public sector will continue to respond to major economic and social trends, such as concerns about the future of the workplace and the economy, climate change, digital privacy, and more, with actions that reverberate throughout the world's economy. And to take a look at some of these trends, as well as have a conversation about the technology supporting them, I've asked Simon Godfrey to join me. Simon is the chairman of the public sector board at Tech UK and the director of government relations at BT Group, a British multinational telecommunications company headquartered in London, England. Simon, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Yeah. Hi, Brian. Good to be here. So today we're going to take a look at some of our predictions for 2022 and glimpses into the future but before we get into 2022 i wanted to take a quick look back at the past year and i'm curious to know what have been some of your biggest observations in government digital transformation in 2021 wow um well that's been a lot Uh, there's been a lot of um
1: conversations brian Uh, a lot of challenge given the background with coronavirus of course Um, I think for me, the biggest observation is the pace of things. I know that's an obvious statement to make, but there seems to be a a slightly more engaged attitude towards risk and uh, suppliers taking on a little bit more risk and a much more wholesome conversation between the supply community and, and government in general. So I think it's a real maturing, to be honest. There have been pockets of real excellence, uh, but clearly there's always been some pockets where there's some room for improvement. So I think outside the technology bubble, it's about the appetite to get things done, a realization that pace does actually mean something, and sometimes you've just got to trust your partners to do the right thing.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really good point on risk. One of the things that we've talked about has really been the accelerated pace of everything and whether or not governments are going to, be able to keep up with that pace, or whether they they want to keep up with that pace. But the idea that they've also been accepting more risk because they've had to keep up just out of necessity is is interesting. Are, are you talking about uh, security risk? Are you talking about just partner risk? Elaborate on that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I'm talking about risk in all its forms. Yeah, clearly security risk. You know, uh, elements of trust and so on, but but commercial risk. Uh, one of the biggest challenges I think I've seen over my 30 years in working alongside governments is the the swingometer of, of risk going one way and then the other. Uh, and clearly the defence from our public sector clients is that very much, you know, it's public money. So we need to spend it wisely, send it, spend it sensibly, and uh, be accountable for what we spend and invest. Sure. What, what I've seen really is how um, much sort of brighter attitude uh, and approach to engaging in that conversation so it's not really just a them and us conversation it's much more engaged
0: one of the biggest things i've i've seen and kind of expect to really uh, accelerate in the next year are governments leveraging data to become more prescriptive in and not only how they operate but how they're deploying services externally How have you seen this play out? And what are your expectations moving forward in this area, especially around leveraging data and analytics uh, to become more proactive entities?
1: That's a a really excellent question, but it depends upon which country setting you're in. Um, There's a real sort of, in certain cultures, there's a reluctance to share data as widely as there is in others. So if I look at the Nordics, for example, it's commonplace to share information. There's a much sort of wider acceptance culturally to just you know get the data out there and, and get it delivering some public good. In other countries, there's a much deeper reluctance to sort of share data as widely or, and or as deeply. I'm, I'm a great fan that the more you share uh, within certain safeguards, of course, the better public services can be and will be delivered. Uh, but I think it, it's an elastic question, Brian, if I'm honest, because here in the UK... We've dallied with, um, you know, way back 20 or more years ago with identity as such, and that fell flat on its face because of data privacy issues. That conversation is coming back round again, of course. Um, But if I think about countries such as Belgium, where the identity card is, you know, really sort of commonplace now, uh, their their willingness to share identity and data is is much more... um, well, they're much more open-minded if i'm honest so so it depends it's not why isn't this certainly not a one-size-fits-all answer for you
0: so while we're on the topic of identity i'm i'm curious to know too uh, some of the things that we've seen is the larger the the government perhaps there tends to equate more bureaucracy more policies that can um hinder some of that that innovation through through policy. Uh, What are your thoughts on a country like Belgium being able to maybe have, I don't want to say more lenient policies, because obviously they care about data security and they they care about um, their citizens' privacy, but the ability for them to perhaps innovate around something like identity um, at a faster pace versus a country like the United States or, or just a larger government entity?
1: Yeah, I, I wouldn't pick out Belgium as the best example because clearly the home of, of Brussels, as they are, that's you know European policymaking a bit large. But I take your point that actually you know the, the smaller and the more agile and the more nimble a country is in, in terms of its relative size to the size of the government, the faster decisions can be made. But by necessity, the bigger the country, and you you call out the US on this there are so many more voices, so many more opinions, so many more sort of things to be cognizant of before leaping into the identity debate. Um, So I think there's no optimum size, really. Partly, as I mentioned, it's about culture, about background and about history. But equally, I think you raise an excellent point that um, size really does matter. And the bigger, often the slower. You know, I I don't want to sort of do any parallels between dinosaurs and and hominids or whatever. But, (laughs) you know, in terms of agility... Um, you know, the smaller smaller governments with a, a cultural background to accept data as a force for good tend to move a lot more quickly and tend to be higher up the uh, the Desi rankings, which is the um, European uh, Communion uh, community. Sorry, uh, rankings. So um, yeah, it's 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 a tough one. But Belgium's not the best example out, out of all of those, of course.
0: I, I want to say on digital identity just for a second, um, especially the topic has been um, really top of mind. As the pandemic has kicked off and how they can make, whether it's a driver's license or any type of identification, um, vaccination status, et cetera, passports, a really good example, digital. And I think one of the things that I like about my global role is I get to take a look at kind of what's happening around the world and bring some of those insights back to other areas. And I think Europe especially has has really taken a driver's seat in what digital identity could look like. I think in in the United States, we're, we're a little bit behind and we're starting to get there and have some of those conversations, whether it's about policy or whether it's technology, et cetera, but Europe is kind of moving a little bit, um, a little bit faster than we are. So as we take a look in the next year, what are some things that we in the United States might expect around digital identity that might be happening right now, or that you see coming, um, down the path?
1: If I think about this existentially for a moment, and I think about the longer term sort of um, role of identity in in delivery of services, both public and private, and then I think about the distributed ledger technologies of of blockchain uh, and how maybe, and I know this is a conversation folks with Accenture have had before, uh, how do you use um, distributed ledger to verify identity so that your, your country passport becomes much less necessary um, as you travel from country to country, is there a system that really can support the, the delivery of identity at point of need? So I think technically that's absolutely capable and, and is doable, of course it is. But then again, you come against the one and not invented here syndrome, uh, country by country. But then you come against those people who, you know, for whatever reason, enjoy a physical Sort of document, be that a, an identity card or a passport or a driving license or anything like that, um, and they want to have it in their wallet and their pocket. So this is that shift, and maybe it's an age thing. Maybe it's the the older folks, like myself now, who you know still feel comfortable with a piece of plastic in the wallet to prove who they are. Whereas actually, I think over time we'll we will see a shift towards digital identity uh, enabled by distributed ledger. Now that's that's looking far off into the future maybe maybe 15 or 20 years away um you know there are, there's a whole suite of things i think if i look at the particularly for the uk experience back in 2000 early 2000s um when the identity card was actually going to be a card there was a real resistance because it was a almost a tool of government control. So the privacy of folks were sort of sort of advocating. Uh, but where, where are we today? We've come so far in the last 20 or so years. And what what we do with our mobile devices just wasn't dreamt about, or maybe it was by a few people back then, but certainly not by the masses. And how that technology or that platform can then be used to verify fingers, faces, speech, and so on and so forth to so have a sort of, a, you know, a quad way of looking at identity. So not two-factor authentication, but four-factor in- authentication for delivery of services. I really don't think, and I haven't really seen, if I'm honest, to your point earlier, many governments think about it in that way. You know, they, they, they know the technology's there, but the policy at the moment is very simplistic identity rather than thinking about what could good look like using four-factor identity.
0: So going to shift a little bit because one of the ways that, that type of technology is really facilitated is is via cloud adoption, right? Yeah. And I think the cloud has been one of the ways um, that governments have been able to scale out some of the things, especially over the pandemic. It's been a really big, hot topic. Um, I still think public sector lags behind significantly behind the, the private sector and their adoption, but we've seen a lot of movement, especially with the pandemic, driving these quick responses to challenges, et cetera. You talked about accepting more risk. I think you don't have to look far to get down to cloud to be part of what that that risk is acceptance looked like do you think that we're going to see significant growth around cloud adoption and government over the next year beyond what we're kind of already seeing yeah i absolutely
1: do i i think we're gonna head towards a hybrid environment if i'm honest uh there are with a cloud of clouds if you will That's a very obvious thing to say that's been talked about for some time, but I don't see a wholesale shift to a single architecture. What I do see is is a a myriad of different clouds, scalable, interoperable, uh, but I think it's inevitable. If government is really serious about joined up personal services at the point of need, being able to scale that quickly. And, and respond and, and upgrade it and add new features and functions. There is absolutely no way that can be done in any other environment other than, other than a cloud or hybrid cloud environment, Brian.
0: So as we're looking at hybrid cloud, I'm also, and you, you talked about um, kind of multi-cloud, are you seeing more of a, of a public cloud environment within public sector um, where they're kind of leveraging the AWS's, um, Azure's, Googles of the world? Yeah, yeah,
1: very much. I think if I think about it with my, my tech in UK hat on, absolutely. It's it's very competitive out there, right? You know, AWS mm-hmm. have done fantastic work here in the UK in terms of getting their, well, their brand is their brand. Of course, we all know it. But but in terms of penetration into the public sector marketplace, uh, the folks at AWS have done a fantastic job. Uh, you yeah, know, Microsoft have a, have a slightly different approach to it, but they're doing a great job as well. So I absolutely think that, you know, it, it is, the big players uh, are absolutely front and center of this conversation. Now, if we come back to sovereign capability and data security and, you know, the JEDI project to take an example of, you know, sort of what sovereign yeah. isn't, um, then we, yeah. we have a firm in the UK called UK Cloud, right? Um, by its very definition, it's providing cloud services to, to the UK public sector. Is it able to move as quickly as some of the big guys? No, uh, but it is absolutely fit for purpose. Um, and it's really from a buyer point of view, strategic intent to go one direction or the other. And I'm not sure if you're well aware of the the UK position, but there is a federated model in our local authorities around the country. They can buy what they want from whom they want. Um, And there's less sort of direction from the centre that you should use this or that or favour this or that. Mm -hmm. We're still bound by um, what I still call European procurement rules, even though they're now sort of entrenched into UK law. The principles remain the same, open and fair competition. But what I am saying is the the heavyweight AWSs and uh, particularly Azure are doing extremely well, Brian.
0: I'm curious to get your opinion here, and and we're going to talk kind of theoretically for a second. If we're yeah. talking truly predictions, sure to go wrong, um, this is a a perfect segment for that. One of the things that I think has driven cloud adoption in government has been the increase uh, in maturity of the the security posture of these clouds. Um, Especially one of the reasons why governments have leaned so heavily, almost exclusively on public cloud is the investment into security. But it's also been one of the inhibitors for some of the kind of smaller firms, more disruptive technologies getting to the public sector because they have to go through some of these processes, especially ones that are native born in the cloud. Do you ever see a time when there might be a global cloud compliance posture within public sector. I'll uh, kind of analogous to what we have with FedRAMP in the United States, Protected B and Canada, IRAP in Australia, et cetera. Do you see there ever being some type of model that's global in scope to, to support um, what that migration looks like, supporting da- data sovereignty issues, et cetera, to allow, companies to go through that process perhaps once and then be able to bring their their emerging disruptive technologies to governments all around the world
1: well the short answer is yes I do um, but I see it as some some way off in the distance um, there's a lot to work through to get there I think it makes absolute logical sense to do that especially amongst developing and developed nations uh, with a sort of free market Western mindset uh, why wouldn't you do that uh, but I do think that I'm very you know, I spent a lot of time working alongside the political classes Brian and you know I know how hard that can be you know sure. it's not in my backyard therefore you know it's somebody else's idea and I'm not interested so actually so so if I think about the ANSI standards and I think about you know the way CDs came to be born if you remember that far back um and then to DVds there was a global sort of alignment to standards so the well there were two standards really you know you'll be well aware of the CD standards in the US being different to Europe. But nevertheless, um, that sort of adoption of, um, you know, a standard way of working really promulgated a fantastic growth in, in the music business. Right uh, now clearly security posture is very different to, you know, just laying down data, digital data on, on to sort of 12 centimeters of plastic. And, and <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, um, I do, I do think it's necessary. Absolutely. Uh, I do think it, Will have to be done by really strong-willed collaboration, you know, from major governments. If I'm honest, and that means the US working more closely with you know, European partners. You know, you'll be aware that in the UK we're part of the Five Eyes, um, Australia, or South Canada, and so on, and um, and that's important, right? Uh, but nevertheless, um, being part being member of a club doesn't mean you'll turn up at the same time and have the same conversation. So. Yes. Yes is the answer. Um, but we have to work towards it. It just won't happen by itself.
0: I'm curious to know too, kind of what, what your thoughts are here, because I actually see, and I think I mentioned this to you before, I actually see Europe as being one of the big drivers around making something like that happen, not through participation, but just based on need. I mean, we take a look where we are in the United States and we travel across state lines the same way that, uh, in, in Europe, you guys travel across country lines and, When you're having to share data across, especially talking about identity, um, when you're having to share data across country lines and having countries work together to do those types of things, security is obviously top of mind and having those joint standards. You don't want to go from one country to another to another and have three different standards that you're working across and and shareable content as well. So I actually see uh, that region being one of the biggest drivers Around creating what this what this global yeah. measure could well, look like,
1: I agree with you. I think the the Schengen Agreement, which allows for that you know, in countries within Europe, you know, free free flowing borders, is the fundamental basis upon which Europe will survive uh, as an entity. Um, there's a, there's a lot of plus points actually. So immediately, if you start putting up barriers and you know different ways of, of you know validating security security postures and so on, then it becomes harder to do that. So for, for Europe to be a, a global force in its entirety with 300 million people, close to that of the US, then it needs to have exactly what you have in the US, which is the ability to move border to border, not just state lines, clearly, but but country to country, as you say. Um, and I do think you're right. I, I genuinely believe that to, to be economically prosperous as a set of nations, then this is really, really important. Now, that's notwithstanding you know, sort of existential security threats coming from, from afar or even inshore in as such. But that's a very different question in terms of whether that's nation state actors or whether that's individual actors or groups and how do you identify them and, you know, behaviors and so on and so forth. That's a, that's a wholly different question. But for movement of people across lines, then absolutely, I, I think you're just spot on with that.
0: So I want to pivot a little bit and we touched on the implications the pandemic kind of created for government. I think one of the biggest changes that we've seen has centered around remote work, um, something that uh, governments all over the world, they were at different evolutionary points in how they could or could not support remote work. And I'm of the mind that you really can't put the genie all the way back in the bottle. I think you're gonna have governments that aren't gonna keep all of their employees remote, right? I, I don't think that's feasible, but I also don't think they're gonna shift completely back to the way they were before I'm curious to get some of your predictions around remote work and and what some of the technologies are that you see kind of helping drive this, um, uh, this trend forward.
1: I don't think we'll ever go back um, to what was normal, you know, about two years ago.
0: And um,
1: had the pandemic lasted six months, then I think there would have been a real sort of gravity pull to back to what was then in terms of ways of working. But now we're coming up to two years, you know, in March next year. I think people just genuinely, both both sides, sort of, you know, employer side and employee side have got used to the flexibility and for many the enhanced productivity of working in a more um, digital fashion, to put it bluntly. Yeah, Mr. Nadella at um, Microsoft, did he talk about three months' worth of, um, or no, three years' worth of um, productivity gains in three years or transformation mm-hmm. in three years? Absolutely. I mean, that's really, really important. Um, so I don't think we're gonna go back again now. But the question about hybrid working is, what does it look like for what, what sort of organizations? Clearly there are service organizations where it is about person to person contact, and working in a hybrid fashion when you're selling a cup of coffee over an account is pretty silly, right? Um, you know, you still need presence, you still need people, you still need that sort of thing to happen. But if I look at the UK as a predominantly services-based company, I was doing some statistical analysis this morning. Our manufacturing sector is now less than 10% of our GDP, right? So 90% of the UK is um, on services. Many of those services, not all, but many services, can be enabled and enhanced by by digital working. Uh, as far as technologies are concerned, I do think to, to validate you know, who you're speaking to, um, are they who they purport to be, um, can I trust them, right? You know, there has to be something um, that's coming down track in terms of trust technologies to really make sure as we do more and more interactive working digitally and the and the pace of that speeds up, then a sort of brokering of trust needs to happen because I'm getting pinged from left, right and centre every minute of the day to hook up into a conversation with someone uh, who I've never met before, right? How do I know they are who they say they are? How do I know that they're not going to, you know, you know, ask me sort of searching questions? Uh, not quite like you're doing, right? But in other areas, and um, and when life becomes quick and pacey, the ability to make mistakes uh, is, is increased, right? So I do think there's a, you know, some sort of trust brokering technology really needs to be brought to the fore. You know, and that's got to be married with identity as well. As far as devices are concerned, well, I think with the world, I'm speaking to you at the moment from a little office and I'm speaking to you uh, with my with my laptop in front of me. But you know, actually, to be fair, most of my work is done on the fly. It's done on a pad. It's done on a, a mobile device. I've got four of these things. Uh, and I'll use them as I see fit to use them when I need to use them. So I'm not quite 24-7, Brian, but you know, it does feel like that sometimes.
0: No, I, I think I think most people listening would agree that, especially during the pandemic, and I don't see it going back, our jobs and our lives have gotten uh, that much crazier. I mean, there's, there's times where I'm talking to my wife and um, I'm triple booked or, or quadruple booked um, for meetings in certain areas, and I don't think it's not it, it's not just the time spent when you're talking to somebody, meeting somebody, or the work that's being done. I I think the the topics that you're going from from meeting to meeting to meeting, you're going from different uh, different topic to different topic to different topic, and you're just kind of all over the place. I think it's it's created a different pace of of work. And, and I unequivocally think that pace isn't going away. Um, it'll be interesting to see what what the hybrid work environment looks like, though. And there's companies out there already that are taking a look at how we're working now um, and what type of technologies need to be in place, whether it's physical hardware or the software facilitating it. Um, you look at Microsoft and some of the, the screens they're creating, or even Google in their workspace and the screens they're creating to figure out what is the new meeting look like when you're in an environment, but you have people that are working from home. And as we're talking, one of the things that pops into my head is the importance of cloud adoption, right? How are you going to facilitate what a hybrid new normal looks like without shifting back to the cloud? I think that's, Uh, that uncertainty is is one of the biggest motivating factors, I think, for governments to adopt that type of technology.
1: Yeah, if I reflect a little, I agree with you, but if I reflect a little bit about work styles, right, you know, and I think about my day-to-day relationship with folks in and around the UK government, you know, clearly everyone went to work from home, but not quite everyone, but certainly a, a rather large number. And policies were put in place to sort of do social distancing at the workplace when people were allowed to return to work and desk booking systems became the norm. And, you know, you know, room booking, you know, much more interactive than just sticking a post-it on the wall and say, hey, it's my room, this is for this next next hour. So scheduling is going to be really important. But if I think about getting back to work and I think about those hundreds of thousands of public servants, millions even in and around the UK in particular and around Europe, um, that tension between, you know, having a, a work-life balance that's wholly, wholly different today as it was two years ago, um, and the policies to sort of only allow 20 to 30 to 40 percent occupancy of buildings, that in itself mathematically seemed very sensible. But actually the, the physical way of managing that to make sure the right people are in the right place at the right time. Is difficult, yeah, because you can't see inside everybody's head what meeting they've got. Yes, they'll have diaries and calendars, but mashing that together and looking at the optimum occupancy for a physical space—you know, if people are coming into the office—that's difficult, right? Because people will have preferences; they'll have certain room sizes they want, they have certain technologies available from they want, and actually to mash all that lot together—I totally agree—that is a a piece of sexy cloud technology that needs to be invented. Uh, to make everybody's life easier. This is the profile of what I'm going to come and talk about. This is where I want to be. This is who I'm hooking up with. This is what it all looks like. Right, where should I go? Answer on a postcard. Well, not really a postcard, clearly, but you know, answer in three seconds on my device, please. And that, that sort of thing will really enable, I think, fantastic productivity because so much time, even today, if I think about me returning to London, uh, is spent just sourcing the right convenient place to have an intelligent conversation with half a dozen people. It's not easy.
0: So that actually, that actually brings up something I wanted to talk about was um, smart cities, but also IOT. Um, as you were talking, I mean, I, I, have spent a lot of time speaking about what the future of government work looks like. And this was even pre pandemic, obviously it's accelerated and we're at a position now that I didn't expect we'd be in, in 2021 going into 2022, but I think of three different theaters within the future of government work, work workforce and workplace and everything you're talking about there really screams workplace and what that future looks like. And I think there's going to be an IOT piece of that, right? So uh, and one of my predictions around IOT is not just around smart cities, but just in general, that the focus is going to be less about linear capabilities Um, what sensor is where, um, are, are we leveraging smart thermostats to reduce cost and and that type of thing? I think it's going to, I think it's going to shift and it's going to be more of a mesh network approach where they're going to take a look at what their ecosystem is and how it can integrate into each other. So they can provide more of a service to exactly what you were saying when you're having these these different meeting rooms speaking to each other, and you're able to kind of bi-directionally communicate to these sensors and um, process certain things at the edge, right? I think all of, all of that is going to be where we're going with IoT. What, is, what are some of your thoughts in this space? Yeah, I think I think
1: edge compute is really, really important. now. I think, you know, if I think about the network and networks in general, um, you know, if everything, I mean, not everything needs to go back to the cloud, right? Um, and certain decisions and certain actions can be taken at the edge. So I'll give you, for, for instance, um, you know, traffic light systems, um, you know, red, green and amber, you know, intelligent ones. Are now not necessarily using the cloud to do optimum route planning. They're, as you to your point one, they're talking to each other around the mesh network and optimizing the flow of traffic on the fly at the edge. Right. Um, so I think that those are that may not be the best example, but it's certainly a, a relevant example in terms of you know um, the experience the public will have when flowing around the city. Okay. So I also think that you know various sensors and devices, lidar, um, you know. All have a pa- a place to play in, in enhancing the the user and citizen experience uh, of where they live, where they work, and where they play. The challenge I think we'll, we we face in in this is not so much about the technology, because technology, as I think we both know, can do many things if you give it enough time, energy, and and, um, and money. Um, the reality is, it's about the, the the policy and the politics and, and the shift in in mental aptitude. Um, and, and trusting a network of devices that are simultaneously talking to each other that you don't necessarily have any real visibility over, right? It's just intelligence programmed at the edge. And I think that that ability to to shift the mindset, to trust the the fabric of the environment in which you're living or working or playing is is not really hasn't really been thought about, if I'm honest. Uh, and I do think you know, being half a policy guy as well, there'll be some technical challenges, of course, but there'll also be some policy challenges as well. Let me give you, a, a for instance, so let's take that traffic light example and let's say something goes wrong with it, okay? And, and some five-year-old actually ends up walking in the road and actually, you know, gets injured by a passing vehicle, right? Who's at fault, yeah? You know, the network's intelligent by itself, but something's gone wrong. So we are, after all, humans, okay? And we... And when those sort of sad things happen, then we need to point the finger and say, ah, it was this person's fault. It's not this machine's fault, it's this person's fault. And therein lies the challenge between policy politics and pragmatic way forward with technology. There has to be a balance there. So I think that edge compute, that mesh network thing is absolutely right and proper. But again to my earlier point, to achieve that it's going to take longer In pilot form, it'll be fine, okay? ring fence pilots, absolutely. But to get it to scale and to deliver real social value to the fabric of community will take longer than you think it will.
0: Yeah, I I think there's a lot of different policies that are in place. It's One of the things that we talk about on a regular basis, um, during the World Economic Forum, we have the uh, G20 Global Smart Cities Alliance. And one of the big priorities that we focus on there is really around policy a great example is uh, autonomous vehicles and what is the, what are the policies around that? And then what are the um, communication methods, right? What should they be integrating with communicating with what, what are they allowed to communicate with, et cetera. And um, what, what action can those integrations allow the car to take? Um, Things like that are really fascinating. And I also think, like you said, I think it's going to be the policy that will drive some of these things forward um, or not. Rather than the technology because the technology is there. It's just the willingness to, to adopt it and doing so in not only the right fashion, but an ethical fashion as well. We, we have the conversation on ethical AI all the time, but um, really ethics goes into every single layer of, of technology and that'll be one of the big driving forces i think we're finally looking at those pieces now within government and how they're adopting things
1: and of course that's not the sexy part is it i mean you know uh,
0: no uh, no as,
1: as a pseudo techno person you know i like the technology of course it could do anything you wanted to and you know, that's, that's great but actually the ethics part when somebody said to me let's talk about digital ethics you know two years ago my heart might have sunk a little bit because like, oh course it's going to be a difficult conversation but that's it's needed in, you know it needs to be a difficult conversation to get through a minefield of challenges mm-hmm. Um, I recently had a very interesting conversation with Professor Carissa Velez of Oxford University, their digital ethics professor, um, talking about the the ethics of machine learning, right, and and predictive analysis of what's coming next. It's sort of subsuming the latent ability of human creativity, right? And I thought that was a fascinating touch point to say, actually, if, if we let the, if we let go of human control, okay, in our networks and networks of networks, you know, I'm not one of these people to think a sort of dystopian nightmare may appear, but nevertheless, you know, be careful for what you wish for. Um, and I think the ethics piece and the policy piece needs to be so thoroughly thought through. And of course, this is where you look at, I'm just looking at the moment across the range of the European sort of um, digital economy and society index, right, from 2021. And, and at the top of the uh, tree is Denmark, right? have got the human capital, the connectivity, integration of technology and public services is all up there really well. At the other end, you've got Romania as such. These are wholly different countries who will take pragmatic different views to ethics and how digital technology is going to enable their societies. Well, Welcome to a conversation in Europe, right? That's the that's reality. <laughs> it's not just the languages that uh, divide us, it's opinions and a whole series of things.
0: No, I, I think that's, that's absolutely right. You have different... Uh not only different leaders that have been elected by different government parties that have different thoughts on things, but you have different religions across these that that could dictate some of these. It's, it's such a a melting pot around the world. I think needless to say, right. And understandably, so all of those factors go into all of the ethics and adoption behind technology on on a global scale, which is why it is so fascinating. It's, it's very easy to, Stay within your lane, within your singular country, or even if we're talking about the U.S., within your singular state, and and understand yeah. that, and just play within that area. It's a lot different when you open the aperture into that global universe, and it it becomes a completely different game. Um, but yeah, yeah. before we before we uh, wrap up a little bit, I do want to touch on one more topic, well, and that that's around citizen experience. And I think this of all topics that we're going to touch on today has probably had the largest impact I would argue from the pandemic because everything did have to go digital. You had governments again, like I mentioned at different evolutionary points on where they are and how they could serve their citizens. You're in one area, you could be walking up to a a building to get a driver's license because that's the only way. And another one, you you could be everything, having everything automated digitally and it's just a really seamless experience and somewhere in between that. I'm curious to know, as we have navigated the pandemic and governments have shifted into focusing on that omni-channel bespoke experience digitally, what are some of your predictions in the space? And I think this is one that's going to continue to accelerate. I think we've talked about whether government can keep up at a certain pace. I think this is one that is kind of running downhill. And I don't think government really has a choice whether or not they, they can accelerate. They just have to keep up.
1: See, experience. I mean, let's divide it up from public to private. From so if you if you have a poor experience in a retail environment or a restaurant or wherever, you vote with your feet, don't you? It's immediate. Right? You 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 don't pay the bill or you just leave, and that that you know, that's the citizen experience, and that's the same for private digital channels. Of course, it's it's an immediate feedback loop. Yeah. Now, with public sector, it's not an immediate feedback loop. So we we elect our officials for a handful of years, some four, some five, and and some maybe even longer, right? Um, so so they are the people that set the reference points for the public services that then get delivered over their electoral term. So so I think our experience in our private lives, going shopping and eating and you know socialising with friends, is wholly different, and the expectation level of public services. In terms of meeting those high, the high bar of private services is somewhat lower. Look, I'm speaking from a slightly, you know, UK-centric, jauntist point of view. You know, politicians and politics generally don't always live up to what they say they're going to do, right? And for a variety of good reasons, Brian. Okay, I'm not bemoaning that at all. It's just really complex as such. Um, the, the experience, I think, you know, if I think about some of the things that have worked really well, they're very often the one size fits all processes. So for example, one of the things the UK still shouts very loud and proud about, or two things is how we enabled um, digital driving licenses or rather the process to be digitized very quickly and equally so on passports as well. So come back to the identity piece because it is what it is, right? It's one, one document, it has a photograph and it, it has some data on it and, and away you go. Now, if I think about a very real life story, very close to my home, um, my, wife's sister uh, my sister-in-law um, sadly passed away just in june of this year leaving her 70 year old um, spouse um, not very tech savvy right um, not really engaged with technology and never had to deal with public services before at all and his requirements brian were really specific so he didn't have this one size fits all approach so he would have massively benefited from a personalized service okay uh, you know, nuancing all of his needs in a very online, integrated fashion so he got what he wanted when he needed it at the right time so that he wouldn't be stressed, right? Do you think that happened? Not at all, right? What happened was that these the public services tripped over each other. The experience he got was really poor. He wanted to get in his van and just drive up to Scotland and live in the mountains in the back of town because <laughs> these are sort of the real-world issues that people deal with, Right. Um, And actually, the citizen experience feedback in public sector isn't very good. Now, I'm not saying it's insurmountable, but I do think that it's just a lot more complex than binary transactions. And I think the view of the whole person is really difficult unless we go some way down the identity and the privacy uh, conversation in more depth and more rigor so that we collectively are... I say profile, but which we have a profile of who we are and what our needs are that will evolve over time. And maybe that's a cloud service, right? Maybe it's an arbitrated cloud service that I I, I pass up my details to a broker that I trust that then allows me to to receive exactly the services that I need, both from a healthcare, care, from a social services point of view, from a transport, a travel and so on and so forth, you know. So we're putting intermediaries, almost like um, avatars, I suppose you could say that, or digital twins of us existing in. Do I don't use the word cyberspace anymore? But nevertheless, so I think you know the citizen experience is is a is a really really great question because you know putting aside the fact we're not going to vote with our feet, we vote at the ballot box or balloting machine at some point. The reality is that it's a very it's the same word for a wholly different set of things.
0: Well, if I can add one more one more thing there, I. Th- yeah. Your example is a, a perfect kind of analogy or, or example for why empathy has to be so top of mind in how governments deliver these experiences too, because you, you talk about how we vote with our feet when we're dealing with a retailer, but there, with government, we're dealing with life events and mm-hmm. major milestones. It, it could be the birth of a child. It could be the death of a loved one. Yes. And those experiences have to be met with the type of empathy that the, the citizen warrants. You're not talking about returning uh, a sweatshirt at a store, right? Or, or, yeah. or dealing with Amazon on, on some, some bad experience. You're talking about a life milestone. And I think empathy yeah. is a big piece of that. So uh, really appreciate the time today, Simon. I've loved this not conversation. Good. We've touched on a lot of different things. I just wanted to give you a chance to leave any final thoughts for the listeners.
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, I just think one of the things that worries me mostly, other than the sustainability conversation, um, you know, where we were, how how are we using our tools to, to live a better life and have less impact upon our planet, right? And that's that for me is the underlying major issue of you know the next fifty years. Um, but there's also the quantum conversation as well in terms of you know quantum supremacy has being claimed by a number of organisations and countries, right? It's inevitable that it will happen. The impact of it may well be really um, challenging. And how we defend or protect or, or put security wraps around the data that we own personally and professionally, I think needs to be thought about now. You know, it's a conversation that, you know, it'll be like a dam breaking Brian, you know, um, or a tsunami coming at you. When it happens, it's happen- it happens. You'll know it's going to happen, but by the time it happens, it's too late, right? So I, th- I think really thinking about the, 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 the validity and the importance of your personal data, how it's managed, how it's shared, who gets value of it, who has access to certain parts of it is something we've not really yet fully thought through at to scale. And for me, if there's a future for the cloud, if, if the cloud or the cloud or clouds can start to solve that problem, there'll be a greater trust in the cloud, whoever is providing those services, and therefore greater engagement with those services. And I think we'll see a real step change if we achieve that. And I'm not saying that's going to be easy, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a person who's always optimistic. I place my trust in people. Um, and uh, hopefully, most of the time, that works really, really well, but occasionally it doesn't. Um, so if we can have a trust platform, a trusted platform integrated with tools and technologies, you know, in the cloud, then, hey, you know, quid's in, we'll all be living better lives. And if we can then promulgate that around, you know, uh, planet Earth, uh, to countries less well-developed, you know, uh, bearing in mind their own individual contexts, then, hey, we'll all be, you know, living well, healthy lives, you know, sharing the goodness and the spoils of, you know, digital development.
0: I I think that's a perfect way to end. And one of the things that I would say is, Especially if we're talking about what the the around quantum and security and and uh, data privacy, I think we have this next generation of digital natives coming forward that understand all the implications of that. And I, I'm hoping that um, we have some really smart people that are already thinking thinking about some of these things and the implications that our decisions today have for 30, 40, 50 years down the road.
1: Brian, I really hope so because <laughs> you know I think you can scenario model to the like proverbial cows come home you know and you're going to land on various scenarios and i think that you know the more the bright young guns of tomorrow do that the better don't just think the future is wrapped up in one product it's wrapped up in many and service and think about it think about it. the permutations of all those possibilities before we make choices
0: certainly simon thank you again for the time this has been a really enjoyable conversation this has been the government huddle podcast you can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or wherever you access your podcast. And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at ChittistrayB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.